you please turn with me in your Bibles to Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 1. Just recently, last Sunday, finished our series through 1 Thessalonians, so this evening we begin with 2 Thessalonians. <clears throat> Hear God's word in the first four verses of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We had always to give thanks to God for you brothers as is right because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions, and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Thessalonica was a city that as a whole did not appreciate Christianity. The life for Christians there in that town was difficult. Uh, We know something of the history of the church's persecution from Acts 17. According to Acts, Paul arrived in Thessalonica while on his second missionary journey. And following uh, the regular strategy of ministry that he had adopted, he went first to the Jewish synagogue. Paul's usual method of ministry was to go first to the Jew. And Acts 17 verses 2 through 4 tell us what happened when Paul followed this strategy in Thessalonica. Uh, Paul went into the synagogue of the Jews. It says um, that he went in as was his custom And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But that's not the only result of Paul's preaching in the synagogue, if we read on in Acts, we find that some of the Jews did not believe, and out of envy set the entire city in an uproar. They incited a mob to attack the house of Jason, a believer who had been housing the apostle Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And the persecution was so intense that, that uh, Paul and Silas, and presumably Timothy, had to be sent away by night to Berea. And even this drastic measure did not end the opposition, for no sooner had they taken up the work of ministry in Berea that the Jews of Thessalonica, quote, came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds, end quote. So Paul had to be sent away once again, uh, this time by sea to the safety of Athens, while Silas and Timothy were able to remain in Berea. But Paul commanded uh, Silas and Timothy to come to him in Athens as soon as possible, and eventually Silas and Timothy did catch up with Paul in Athens. It was soon after their reunion that Timothy was sent back to Thessalonica in order to encourage and strengthen the church there. And uh, this was needed, presumably, because the amount of time the missionaries had been able to do ministry, um, to do ministry there had been cut short by persecution. Scholars vary in their estimates of how long Paul had ministered in Thessalonica, but I know of no one who says that the stay was longer than six months. And, uh, and uh, most think it was substantially shorter than that. 
So the new Christians there undoubtedly needed further instruction and discipline. And when Timothy returned to Paul with a report on the church, it was this report that prompted Paul to write the first letter to the Thessalonian Christians. Someone whose identity is unknown delivered the letter to the church in Thessalonica. It's believed that this person returned to Paul a couple of months later with a report about the church that then spawned this second letter to the church there in Thessalonica. Because these two letters were written within a relatively close period of time, it doesn't surprise us to learn that these two letters deal pretty much with the same issues. Because the church was a persecuted church, Paul remains concerned that the believers are remaining strong in their faith. The first letter implies rather clearly that the church had some misunderstandings about Christ's second coming. Uh, These misunderstandings were having some negative effects upon how they were living. Some were filled with sorrow because they thought their loved ones who had died would miss out on the glories of Christ's return. Others were failing to work, thinking that Christ was going to return at any moment. And from the latest report, Paul learned that some misunderstandings about Christ's second coming still remained. It seems, in fact, that the first letter had led to further misunderstandings. And so Paul feels the need to provide further instruction on the end times, on on Christ's return. And while there are some issues that need to be confronted, we also see that just as in the first letter, the second letter is filled with praise and thanksgiving for how well overall things are going in this particular church. It remains true that there are no huge problems. In fact, some of the admonitions of the first letter are not mentioned again in the second letter And that tells us that probably much of Paul's instruction had been heeded by the church's members. So looking at the letter itself here now, this this second letter, we notice that it begins with almost the same wording as we find opening the first letter. The first letter is addressed uh, to quote the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The second letter is now addressed to the church of the Thessalonians in God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's just the difference of the Father and our Father. This change is admittedly very minor, and yet there's some significance to it. It tells us something of Paul's view of the members of this church. He's saying that he and they have the same heavenly Father, which tells us that he feels a certain unity with them. He considers himself to be a part of a spiritual body and a family that includes these Thessalonian Christians. And this wording disproves those commentators who think that Paul comes across in this second letter as cold and, and, form, and uh, formal um, as compared to his first letter. This wording, God our Father, also reminds the Thessalonians and us of how God is Father in more than one sense. He is the Father as the first person of the Trinity, and as such, the Father of the Son, Jesus Christ. But he is also our Father. And by referring to God as our Father, Paul is emphasizing that God is the Father of his people, and specifically, the Father of the church in Thessalonica. And what this fatherhood means in practical terms is that the church there in Thessalonica, and by implication every church, including our church, finds its origins in God. Just as God the Son derives his life and being from God his Father, 
So the church derives its life and being from God, its father. It is correct to say that as the father of the church, God is the creator of the church. Now, of course, there are some important distinctions that must be kept in mind as we compare the father's work of generating the son with the father's work of creating the church. While the son has been eternally generated by the father within the Godhead itself, the church is not eternal. Furthermore, the generation of the Son is something natural and necessary to the triune Godhead. Without the Son, God would not be God. But the church is a different story. God did not have to create the church. The origin of the church is all of grace. To belong to God's family is a favor that he has bestowed on sinners like you and me who actually deserve to experience none of the joys of God's fellowship. Reality is that when Adam rebelled against God, he did so as our representative, which means that we're born into this world sharing in Adam's guilt. And the other effect of Adam's fall is that we are born into this world with the same sin nature as Adam. We are born corrupt. We are born then alienated from God, dead in our trespasses and sins, and headed as we deserve toward eternal destruction and hell, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So it is God's grace that accounts for your salvation from sin. It is grace that makes you a member of the body of Christ. And of course, we can't rightly talk about God's grace in creating the church without in the very next breath saying something of how God brought the church into being through his son, Jesus Christ. Which brings us back to Paul's address here in his letter to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only through the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ that there is a church. Jesus, his body was battered, his blood was shed on the cross for the redemption of the church. It was Jesus Christ who satisfied the justice of God for the church. God's justice says that Our sins deserve wrath, that we deserve to die under God's curse. And Jesus satisfied the justice of God demanded against our sins by taking upon himself the curse that our sins deserve. We say that Jesus was our sin substitute because all of the suffering that he experienced in his life here on earth, but especially his death on the cross, was his pain, the debt of our sin. He suffered and died in our place as our representative, with the goal being that we do not have to suffer the consequences of our own wrongdoing. And this new status with God earned by Christ can be summarized as peace with God. We understand how far we were from God because of our sin, and then all that God did through his Son to restore us and to make us members of his church, we know that we owe everything to God's grace in Jesus Christ. And Paul is thinking of our salvation in Christ's church when he pronounces that salutation, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Grace is that unmerited favor of God by which he blesses sinners who deserve punishment and wrath. And peace is the result of this grace. Peace is a very comprehensive word that describes what Christ, by his work of grace, has earned for us. The peace that Paul is referring to is, first of all, peace with God. This, is a, this, this peace means we are no longer enemies of God. 
Peace with God means we are no longer objects of his wrath who deserve condemnation in hell. What this means then from a positive point of view is that we have eternal life. For if you are at peace with God, you are in fellowship with God. And as those who trust in Christ, we are friends of God and thus objects of his love and care. And this peace can also be understood in a slightly different but related way. As those who belong to Christ's church, we have peace in our hearts because knowing God as our loving Father, we are satisfied and we are content. Our hearts are at rest because through Christ we know that our sins are forgiven. We know that we are right with God. Our lives are fulfilled because we have everything we need and want when we have God as our Father through Jesus Christ. And as Christians, you and I have received the gifts of grace and peace, and yet Paul pronounces this benediction, this, the, here this, this salutation, because we and all members of the church of Jesus Christ are dependent upon God to continue to give us grace and peace. Do you realize that you need God not only to start you out in salvation, but that you also need him to keep you in salvation? Without God's sustaining grace, we would fall away and be lost. We need God's grace daily in the forgiveness of our sins. We need the Holy Spirit to continue that gracious work of transforming our hearts so that we grow in our obedience. The truth is that apart from the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, we would fall back, we would turn back to our old ways of sin. We need God's grace sustaining our faith so that we don't turn ever again to trusting in anything or anyone other than the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not dependent, you see, upon God to just initially save us, but we also are dependent upon him to sustain and to complete our salvation. You must not think for a moment that all God does is just put us on the path to salvation and then we by ourselves take it from there. No, the entire process of salvation from beginning to end is God's work of grace. This is related to how we also need God to continue to give us peace. You think about it, we would not really be at peace with God if we were to be at peace with him at the initial point of conversion, but then later were to come under his wrath again because of our ongoing sin. If we are to remain at peace with God, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ must continually cover our sins. Clearly, there are several aspects to this ongoing need for grace and peace. Not only do we, re- we remain dependent upon God's grace to sustain our peaceful state of salvation with him, but we also need God's grace and peace in our everyday lives, helping us to live as Christians. And I think that's Paul's main focus here when he pronounces this salutation. His desire is that the church would know God's grace, making them more and more like Christ. His desire is that they would experience the peace of knowing that no matter how difficult life becomes, they have a refuge in God that gives them lasting comfort and hope. Remember again that the church in Thessalonica was a persecuted church. And persecution has the natural effect of making an otherwise strong, stable believer weak and worried and anxious. When forces of wickedness rise up against the church or against you as an individual Christian, the temptation is that we would doubt God's power and doubt his love and his wisdom. The devil wants us to 
feel overwhelmed by our enemies so that we begin to entertain thoughts of how God has abandoned us, abandoned us, or at the very least is unable to help us. I'm sure that there have been times in your life when you've struggled um, about what to think about God and your faith, and you know that you should trust God. But these feelings of doubt and perhaps even despair get you down. And maybe even this evening there's something going on in your life where you wonder where God is and you're questioning his ways with you. If and when you have such struggles, the last word you would use to describe how you feel is the word peace. And yet in these circumstances, peace is exactly what you need and what you want. And you would love to be able to have a sense of quiet restored to your soul. You desire that contentment and calm that comes with being able to handle the pressures of life. And the good news is you don't have to wonder, you don't have to be in doubt about God's willingness to give you this peace. Throughout the ages, the church has believed that these words of benediction, grace to you and peace, they are not simply expressions of what Paul desires for the church. They are far more than that. This is a pronouncement made by Paul as an apostle of Jesus Christ and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that tells us that God is in fact pleased to give us grace and peace as his people. In other words, the salutation is not a mere wish about things that would be nice to have, but it's God's word to his church. Whenever one of God's ordained pastors speak these words of greeting, this is God's way of telling you that he is pleased to give you these gifts, that he, he's pleased to give these gifts to his people. So you don't have to wonder about God's ability and willingness to bestow these blessings in an ongoing and increasing way. And as Paul thought about the church in Thessalonica, he certainly recognized that they needed to be continually supplied with God's grace and peace, and yet he saw evidence of God's work in their lives. He saw proof of the fact that God's grace and peace were at work in their lives, and this proof was their faith and love. He speaks of this in the verses that immediately follow the salutation there in verses 3 and 4. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. The love of every one of you for one another is increasing Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith and all your persecutions and afflictions that you are enduring. <clears throat> Paul uses an interesting expression here by which he expresses that it would be wrong for him not to thank God for the work that he is doing in the lives of the Thessalonians. He says we ought always, or perhaps your translation says we are bound to thank God always for you, he says. And this not, must not be taken as though this is something that Paul is reluctant to do, but that he's going to do anyway because he's obligated or required to do it. No, he, he's saying that responding to God with thanksgiving is fitting because of what has happened. I ask, how often do you thank God for what he is doing in the lives of the people of his church? It is right and good to extol the work that God is doing in people's lives as he increases their faith and love. Growth in these areas ought to be your longing for yourself personally, as well as for others. When you see others growing in faith and love, your response ought uh, not to be one of envy, but 
your love for Christ and for his brethren ought to compel you to rejoice at any and every occasion of spiritual progress in the body of Christ. And what is often the occasion for such spiritual growth is what we see going on in the lives of the Thessalonian Christians. Their growth in faith and love is directly related to their being persecuted. The persecution has not destroyed their faith. It's not divided the church, but through it, their faith and their unity as a body has increased. The steadfastness by which they have been able to endure hardships is proof of how God has blessed them with spiritual growth. Take notice of their love. Paul writes, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. It's a mark of the Holy Spirit's work when God's people love one another. And it's an even greater mark of the Holy Spirit's work when such love blossoms under persecution. It is a church under attack that we think might be the least likely to be a church characterized by an abounding love. Under stress and hardship, people tend to fend for themselves. They take on a survivalist attitude that says, I take care of myself and others come second. And if a fellow believer comes under attack for his beliefs, the temptation is for you and me to disassociate ourselves from that person so that we don't also come under attack. But that's not how it works in the church of Jesus Christ. By God's grace, we function as a united body so that when one member is in distress, we all come to help. And under the stress and hardship of persecution, Christians support one another and help one another. We don't leave one another to fend each for himself, but we face difficulties together. Paul praises the church in Thessalonica for how they have stuck with each other. They have borne each other's burdens. They have helped each other to be faithful. And this love and support has surely been, in God's good providence, a part of why they have been able to endure persecutions and afflictions. And still, most important of all to their endurance has been a steadfast and growing faith. When you think of faith, think of its three different parts or aspects. There is that part of faith that has to do with believing certain truths. To have faith in Jesus Christ is to know who he is and what he has done to save sinners. And so the first part of faith is knowledge, biblical knowledge. The second part of faith has to do with the heart, with feelings and emotions. You need to have a heartfelt sense that you personally need the Lord Jesus Christ. And along with that is a personal deep conviction of sin and a strong desire for salvation from that sin through Jesus Christ. And the third part of faith is the actual receiving of Christ as Savior, relying upon him alone for salvation. And you can see that these parts that I've mentioned of faith, they correspond to the head, the heart, and the will. You must have a head with biblical knowledge, a heart convicted of sin and of the sufficiency of Christ to save you, and a will that says yes to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And I bring up these three aspects of faith because for your faith to be growing as it was for the Thessalonians, you need to be growing in all three aspects of, uh, of faith. You need to be growing in your knowledge of God and of all that he reveals in his word. There's nothing really that can inspire your confidence and trust in God more than to know his promises to know how he has acted throughout history toward his people. It's important to know his attributes. 
You learn these things from God's word, and then the more you know God and his word, the more you'll have these convictions in your heart. You'll be convinced that he is worthy of trust. Faith convictions of the heart flow from what we know to be true. And then after that, the more you actually take the step of entrusting yourself to God's care and living in reliance upon him, the easier and more natural it will be to live this life of faith. Persecutions and afflictions, by God's grace, have the effect of causing us to cling more intensely to Christ. It's often a hardship like persecution that forces us to rely upon God, which has the the effect of increasing our faith as we experience God's sustaining power. Understand that God tries your faith, not to destroy it, but to prove it. And have you found yourself in situations where you need help? And during such times, where do you turn for help? Do you turn to God? Do you turn to yourself? You turn to human answers and human philosophies. Paul thanked God that when the Thessalonians came under pressure, their faith in God did not cave. They did not turn away from God to human solutions. Their faith in him, their love for him, and their love for the brethren grew. They endured. It was God who enabled them to do this. And he will do the same for you as you look to him. Don't let the circumstances of life become the occasion for turning from God. Look to him. And God's word to you this evening tells you that he is a God who is able and willing to give all who trust in him the grace that is needed to be at peace. God's willingness to die on the cross for sins proves God's love for you, child of God. When you trust Christ, you are trusting a Savior who is not going to let you go. You are trusting a Savior who can be relied upon to give you exactly what you need. And may it be the conviction of your heart that Christ will take care of you. And may that conviction lead you to actually rest upon Christ alone. And then trusting Christ, you will find the strength to endure. God sustained the Thessalonian believers in part for your encouragement. As you read this passage this evening, as as you meditate upon these words, and may it be that your faith and love will encourage other believers. May your faith and love become the occasion for thanksgiving being offered to God. May your example be one that is boasted of among the churches of God. Not, of course, for your own glory, but for God's glory. For the encouragement of God's people, enabling them to endure. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we do give thanks for faith and love that you work in your people. And we pray, Lord, that these things would be growing in our lives, that they would be increasing, that even in the face of persecution, Lord, that we would see our faith and love growing. And may we understand that, in fact, persecution and afflictions are not harmful Uh, to faith and love through the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives. Lord, we thank you that, in fact, it's in the context of persecution and afflictions um, that you are pleased to grant us the grace and peace that we need. Father, we look to you to provide these spiritual gifts. We, We recognize that we do not deserve them. We recognize that we cannot. 
uh, in any way uh, bring them about ourselves. Um, so we look to you. And uh, we pray, Lord, that we would be those who endure. That as we grow in our faith, as we grow in our love for one another, that we would be a help to one another. Uh, that we would realize that endurance doesn't happen uh, merely um, as, as lone Christians, but as we work together, as we support one another. Lord, uh, we pray that uh, we would respond to the circumstances of life, especially the, the difficult circumstances of life, in a way that pleases you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.